Yeah, I remember saying to Emma, the character artist, I was like, he needs better hair. He, you know, it's like, give him good hair. (laughs) 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 Welcome to Talking Simulator, a series of short conversations about video games with interesting people who play them. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in this episode, I discuss the story-rich first-person exploration game, Before I Forget, with my guest, Shella Ramanan. I'm Shella Ramanan, and I'm the narrative designer on Before I Forget and co-founder of Threefold Games. Shella is a good friend of mine, so it felt natural to have her as my first guest for this new series. She now works as a narrative designer at Ubisoft Massive. But Before I Forget, which came out earlier this year, is a small game made by a small team. I'll let Shella describe it. I say it's a narrative exploration game about a woman with dementia. In this episode, Shella and I talk about the distinctive characters she created for Before I Forget, and how she wrote mental illness into a game. I actually learned a lot about dementia from playing the game and discussing it with Shella afterwards. In our conversation, we talk through several key moments from the game, So if you haven't played it yet and want to go in with no idea of what to expect, you may want to save this episode for later. But we do avoid spoiling the central mystery of the story. Is this the right place? Ah, Dylan will know. I'll find him. I got caught in the rain that day in the park. But... You offered to share your umbrella. Here in the UK, obviously, you hear Indian accents and Indian voices all of the time, but not really in video games. I can't really remember another time that I've heard an Indian accent in a video game. And I wondered why you chose to make the protagonist Indian. And obviously, because I know you, I wondered if it was because of your connection with the country. Yeah, it's both of those things, basically. I think when I initially decided it was at the game jam whether the game was kind of thought up that's where we created it and it was one of the things I said I was like oh I'd like them to be South Asian heritage just because I don't see any Indian Pakistani protagonists unless you count sort of terrorist kind of spawns of enemies or something in first person shooters or something like that but yeah there were just no sort of there's no representation of those people and so yeah I thought it was a good opportunity and yeah I do have a familial connection with India so that made it easier I actually recorded some of the sounds in India when I was I was on holiday there. No way! Yeah, so we were in a forest uh, going for a walk and I recorded some of the sounds of like the birds and the crickets in the grass and things like that for our audio person, Jake Baston. Yeah, so that's in the game. That's the soundtrack to the telescope scenes with Sunita's aunt. Talking about writing an Indian character and not being Indian yourself, despite having the familial connection. 
I know that a lot of people are talking about representation in games at the moment. And one topic that gets discussed a lot is whether writers should be quote unquote allowed to write characters from different backgrounds to their own. So this comes up a lot when you get cis people writing trans characters or white people writing black characters. And I know that we've talked about it before, kind of just as friends, but for the sake of the podcast, I wonder how you fall on that particular discussion. I suppose as a black woman, I've been writing people who who are not me <laughs> all my life because, you know, the sort of the default is a white man and a lot of my stories that was my protagonist and I had to suddenly check myself and you know what the hell am I doing so yeah I mean I think writers should you know we write people who who aren't ourselves all the time and yeah I just think people need to be ready for the mistakes they're going to make for the criticisms they're going to get when they get it wrong and I think if you approach it with care and respect then it shouldn't be something that's kind of vetoed because yeah we're creative people and we're imagining things all the time we're imagining lives we've never lived in places we've never been to in places that don't exist and you know sort of creatures and people and cultures that don't even exist and if you can relate to an alien culture more than you can to other human beings and you know find it difficult to write for them then um yeah something's gone seriously wrong <laughs> the setup of before i forget has you playing as sunita looking around her house for her husband dylan picking up objects that trigger memories or i guess trigger like the lack of memories sometimes. And and in that process, we learn that Dylan is a renowned classical pianist and composer. And I wondered how you designed his character, because part of me was like, wow, it seems like he's just like the ideal, you know, male romantic lead, right? Like he's a, oh, he's a pianist and he's so handsome. So was that it? Was he just meant to be this ideal romantic partner for Sunita or was there more to him? Did he need to serve kind of specific needs in the story? Um, yeah, I think I just wanted to people to buy into this romance, basically, to know why she fell in love with him, because we don't, we only know him through her memories. So I suppose there's that as well. She's, you know, will romanticize that meeting and things. And, you know, we only see certain sides of him. And yeah, I just felt it was really important for this relationship to make sense and for people to invest in it so he kind of had to be the romantic hero with you know good hair and <laughs> stuff like that <laughs> I, yeah, I remember saying to Emma the character artist I was like he needs better hair he, you know it's like give him good hair <laughs> uh, <laughs> Glenn Gould was uh, the sort of role model that we used who was a you know quite an eccentric incredible classical pianist because I was looking for inspiration and I think I googled contemporary classical pianists or something like that or 20th century or something and he came up there's this one picture of him where I was like well, is that like from a movie of him or something because he just looks so hot <laughs> so, <laughs> so I sent it to Claire and I was like Jesus Christ look at Glenn Gould and uh, <laughs> and then yeah he just became this model 
for us. And one weekend when Claire was um, around, we, we used to have developer sort of weekends at my house where we could spend sort of good quality time together getting stuff nailed down and they were super productive and then we we found this Glenn Gould documentary we just became obsessed slightly obsessed with Glenn Gould (laughs) (laughs) he's a really interesting character though and uh yeah so we watched this Glenn Gould documentary in the evening It becomes clear while you're playing that Dylan wants to have children and Sunita doesn't. Did you base that on your own experience? I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe it is a part of me, you know, it's something I can kind of relate to. And I think also just the fact that Sunita, you know, goes against the grain of the you know expectations all the time she's Indian and you know there's a pressure on Indian families in fact somebody an Indian person who played the game said oh yeah you know that pressure to get married and have kids that was kind of spot on so yeah it's kind of part of Sunita being this yeah just like non-traditional I guess you know she's a scientist an Indian woman in a scientific career in the 1960s and in a biracial relationship and yeah so I thought her career would be important to her and yeah I understand that aspect of her and I just thought it's yeah not usually the tale we tell about women and relationships and you know and not about men either that you know sometimes men want kids (laughs) (laughs) I really wanted people to fall in love with Dylan And so, you know, even though he has this argument and he wants one thing and she wants another and, you know, and she says, don't pressure me. It was really hard writing that scene because I really wanted, didn't want Dylan to come off as the villain Mm. in that, you know, that we understand both of their points of view. And it's just, you know, he, he loves her and he wants kids with her and she wants other things. So as well as examining the objects in Sunita's home, there are some different activities in the game as well, like looking at the star map, which is ends up kind of being this replayable memory where you are playing as Dylan almost, following Sunita's instructions. So what inspired that particular part of the game? Well, I think we wanted some different gameplay and it was a good way to segment the game. It was a way to demonstrate you know her expertise um it was also a good way to show them together which we don't get very often Mm. and yeah sort of reflects who she is and different points of her life I think it started with Lila auntie so we had this aunt and then I think through in one of the play tests I think she yeah, I don't know if she was already looking at the stars or something, but somebody said basically this, you know, who is this Leela auntie? Where did she come from? And so then we were like, okay, so maybe we need more than one of these. And then we needed to lay in some letters and 
she also mentions Leela Auntie in the in the first sequence which she has with Dylan. And so that kind of foreshadows the appearance of that character. I think she has some of the best lines in the whole game because she sounds so omniscient. She says, you know, the stars show us how small we are and not every story can have a happy ending, not even for the gods. And it felt like she was kind of written in there to be more of a narrator than Sunita in that she talks to the whole story that you, the player, are experiencing. It's like she kind of reaches through Sunita and talks to you, the player. Is that the role she was meant to play or am I overanalyzing? I think she did become that. I mean, it wasn't really conscious, you know, on my part. It's like, now we must have an omniscient narrator who... (laughs) But yeah, she did become that. And I think it was because she was retelling the stories of the gods. And so I suppose her language became... Because she's, you know, a a storyteller in those scenes. And so she, you know, she kind of embodies that sort of mythical epic sort of language she uses and stuff to enthuse Sunita about the stars. And then, yeah, so I did then write in these bits that's kind of touched on Sunita's later story and she did become exactly that and it kind of just all tied in with the sort of the mythical stories she was telling and then she became this kind of yeah omniscient almost godlike sort of prescient voice about the story itself. Obviously this is a game about a person with dementia. How did you go about researching that what was the process like yeah so we started with you know books and films and then we went to there's quite a lot of resources there's a documentary i found on the bbc which was really interesting because it was a a gp with dementia Hmm. yeah so that was really interesting and insightful because she had both sides of the story And then, yeah, there's sort of resources like charities. There's a couple of charity. There's a charity that has a video that's from the perspective, you know, like what's it like walking, like going to the supermarket if you have dementia and, you know, people getting short tempered with you because you can't remember like how to pay and things like that Mm. and yeah so that was really great and then ultimately we made contact with gaming the mind which is sort of medical professionals who are interested in the intersection of mental health and video games um so perfect (laughs) for us (laughs) (laughs) and then yeah so we got in touch with them and they introduced us to a doctor who specializes in dementia and alzheimer's and so those two doctors played builds of the game and yeah for i don't know a couple of months two or three months or something we'd send them a build and then we'd have a call and they'd give us notes yeah and it was absolutely invaluable some of the things you know some of the things they confirmed you know, the things that we'd done right and then gave us ideas for other things that we might want to do. We made changes to the script and the way she describes objects as a result of those conversations with the doctors. So um, what did they say? I always get this. I don't need this when I need Claire because she always remembers this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think it's that they remember the function of an object as opposed to the form. Uh, The watch. Yeah, yeah. So this, the timekeeping thing, yeah, whereas I think we had a key at the beginning and I put the metal 
something. Yeah, I described it, and so he said, um, no, they'd more likely to say the unlocking device or something, mm. uh, which is really interesting the way that um, language erodes in quite specific ways. So yeah, that's things that you just wouldn't know otherwise. When it comes to learning about Sunita's difficulties with memory, you kind of get that a lot with the narration at first as, you know, Sunita talks through the things she remembers and doesn't remember and and talks through her confusion and things. But then there's this one sequence that's really powerful where she needs the bathroom and you as the player have the house mapped out in your mind, but it kind of shifts around you and you can't get to the bathroom in time. And obviously that that sequence is really, really powerful. And I wondered how you came up with that idea and why you think it's so effective. It was pretty early in development. That's um, the sort of most was the most polished bit of the game for a really long time because it was our demo that we took to shows as well so we closed off the rest of the house and there's lots of sort of technical aspects of it that Claire had to figure out and I knew I wanted a sequence where she couldn't get to the toilet in time. I think I was inspired actually I watched a film called Still Alice um, which is about a woman with dementia as well and there's a sequence that she has in her summer house or something so somewhere she's really familiar with and it's just such a sort of yeah again a sort of powerful scene and I was just like wow that's really it's really sort of hard hitting and just you know everyone's kind of nightmare you know even if you're a child you know like wetting the bed you know it's such an utterly shameful thing for people to wet themselves right from childhood so like when you're an adult in your own house so yeah I really wanted that in the game and then of course we had this corridor that was full of doors that were really confusing <laughs> yeah we so <laughs> we built a house and you build a house there's a hallway and there's lots of doors and so it kind of naturally came from from that really it's like oh well we can use this and sort of disrupt the power fantasy of games basically and I think that's why it's kind of powerful because gamers enter game spaces with certain expectations of their skills and you know that they're going to be highly competent if not at the beginning by the end and that everything they do will take them to sort of a higher level of competency and skill within that space and this sequence dismantles that basically you know every door you open takes you back to the the beginning kind of thing and we noticed in play tests that you people who were used to playing games would they'd come and they say oh so how do you how do you beat that bit? You know, like what what's the, the what's the key? And I'd say, well, she has dementia, so she she doesn't. You never you never make it in time because that's just. The, and then they'd kind of like have this moment of realization. Um, yeah, so I think that's why it's powerful, partly because of the expectations players have when they enter game spaces. talked there about closing off the rest of the house for the demo is that why there's the part where there's a black hole in the floor in the hallway or is, does that serve a different purpose 
Yeah, so that's really interesting. Yeah, so we basically locked all the doors and the the black hole, we put that in there partly for the player pathway things because we had this open plan part of the house, but we wanted the players to go through rooms in a particular order. And we tried to avoid the locked door scenario, but, you know, sometimes we did use that. And then the first show that we took the demo to was a little comic con at the top of my road. (laughs) And we got a table for free and we were like, well, it'd be rude not to. And um, yeah, we didn't think it would be ideal for our game. Like, you know, the sort of family day out, you know, this local comic con. I mean, really local, like really quite small town comic-con but we went and we had a lot of interest and somebody who worked in the care center played it and she was like the bedroom had a rug in it and she said oh you couldn't have you couldn't have that in a house with someone with dementia and we were like oh what do you mean and she said oh well if you have rugs or anything highly patterned on the floor or something they uh they have hallucinations and it can look like it's a step up or a hole and we were like oh that's really interesting because it was a symptom we'd never we weren't familiar with Mm. and so we used it basically both to represent one of the symptoms of dementia and to help us control the player pathway as well and I think one of the interesting things is people don't know that symptom so they don't really know what that is or why it's there unless they are a medical professional or have personal experience either through caring for someone or through having dementia themselves and um yeah which is really interesting and I quite enjoy that there's like this easter egg for people Hmm. who have dementia or know people with dementia who like oh yeah I, I get that yeah my colleague's dad had had that exact reaction it's like oh yeah it's like he's like i don't get that he's like but i know people who do because yeah he has yeah a colleague's dad has dementia and played it and sent like notes back so yeah yeah oh wow yeah so it was really nice because he was the first person that got got it (laughs) it's so interesting what you say there about assumptions of what people who have no experience with dementia, but kind of know what it is from the media or pop culture or whatever might have of the game. Because another thing that struck me about the game is how nice it looks. You know, there's all these pastel colors and this kind of soft, pleasant environment. And a lot of games about mental illness go the other way. You know, they're very dark and almost horrifying. And, you know, in the game, you know, you pick up more objects and you kind of unlock more memories or more kind of parts of the story and the world takes on more color and detail and it kind of feels like that represents the player's increasing knowledge at the same time as it represents Sunita's continued confusion mm-hmm. if you see what I mean is is that is that what it's supposed to represent or were you just kind of going against the grain of what people expect from these kinds of games yeah I think partly all of those things. Yeah, really early on, we were like, well, we don't want to use the horror aesthetic to portray dementia. A, because, you know, we were naturally going to get compared to games like Gone Home, which kind of lean into that, you know, like really successfully. So it kind of set us apart that aesthetic. And also because, you know, 
dementia isn't some sort of supernatural occurrence. It's so common, it's banal, it's tragic and painful and, you know, sort of terrifying, but it's also ordinary because a lot Mm. of people have experience of it. So we wanted the house just to be a house. It's not, you know, some spooky manifestation of some supernatural thing because it's not, it's ordinary. So there was partly that. And then the the colour bleeding is basically the moments of lucidity. You know, when she remembers something, she's having a sort of, you know, a lucid moment. And, you know, some of the memories are really happy. And that's something we wanted to portray as well, that, you know, it's not just a life of misery. It's really sad for the people who are left behind or who watch this person slip away from them. But sometimes the people who are you know they've gone to some happy memory you know they're in a they might not necessarily always be anxious and scared and sad you know it's sad for us because it's like no you're not 30 year old anymore you're you're my mum and you know why don't you remember me and things like that but they might be in a place that they feel is quite happy A moment for me that was quite sad was the peaches. So the bit where, as the player, you're kind of guided into the kitchen and you see these notes on the fridge and you get one that says, buy more peaches. And Sunita says, oh, we always need more peaches. And then you click on another one and it says, no more peaches. And she says, oh, but Dylan loves peaches. And then you, the player, obviously, you know, you're starting to suspect that Dylan is no longer around and that's quite sad in itself. But then but then you open this cupboard and it's just full of peaches and she doesn't say anything, but you, in having that experience and opening that cupboard and seeing all of these peaches, you kind of feel like you've trespassed on this, this upsetting realization that you're having and Sunita maybe isn't. How did you go about designing those kinds of moments of of show, don't tell, I guess? Hmm. I think it was just iteration. Yeah, we sort of layered things in and you know, the post-it notes was sort of the final layer that went on top of everything that could cast a different perspective on something. Yeah, it was just basically slowly building in storytelling elements, environmental storytelling. It just took a lot, (laughs) a lot of layers and playtesting and discussion, moving things around, all those things. But yeah, the peaches are a little nod to a novel called Elizabeth is Missing. And the character does that when she gets scared in a shop and she forgets what she's gone in for. She always reaches for a can of peaches. And yeah, Hmm. I just thought it was really poignant and the book's really beautiful. So we decided to put some peaches in there as an homage. With Sunita as the narrator of the game, but also somebody who is experiencing this, the confusion that comes with dementia, how did you strike the balance between having her tell the player things about herself and then 
going the other way and having her forget things. How did you go about making sure that there was enough information to keep the player going while still maintaining the narrative that Sunita is confused? Mm. It did take a lot of playing and replaying it and doing new builds. And in the end, Claire and I sat down and we had a spreadsheet that <laughs> mapped the emotions of the player and Sunita in different scenes. So what the emotional beats were, what was happening, and if we were leaning too far into one thing over another. So we were just basically comparing, because although we're playing as Sunita, we don't feel the same way. You know, the Peaches is a perfect example of that. We feel sad when we see that, but she is, you know, just kind of practical about it and you know like, well we need peaches i don't know what i don't know what that note's all about <laughs> so we kind of mapped that out basically and i think just writing and rewriting and just knowing what we wanted the player to feel at every juncture every beat and also that we had to reiterate that the goal was to find dylan so that kind of drove things as well, what needed to be said. And yeah, that took a lot of placement of objects and moving things around, you know, like we need them to get to this room now, but how do we do that without sort of leading them by the nose? And yeah, it was a lot of discussions and we used all of the tools in our toolkit, which was, you know, sort of environmental storytelling, player pathway stuff, audio cues, which would draw the player and jump cuts so some cinematic techniques like jump cuts which represent her sort of loss of memory um or loss of time you know she loses time mm. yeah there are those moments where you so like when you put the kettle on and when you sit down at the chessboard and the clock starts spinning really fast as if time is kind of getting away from you and you as the player have to decide when to get up and carry on playing was that supposed to reflect a kind of loss of time yeah, so basically I really wanted to have these moments, that feeling of, you know, just sort of like elderly people on their own, you know, that sense of loneliness that is unfortunately can be part of being ill, sort of stuck in your home. Well, we, we're all a little bit more keyed into that feeling <laughs> these days. But but um, just that feeling of, you know, sort of like an old person who you know doesn't their family doesn't visit as much or you know they don't have any family and there's those moments where you just they sit and look out the window and then you know add on the element of dementia where you can get lost in these memories and you know a, a day will pass and you haven't eaten you know which is a real problem with dementia sufferers mm. forgetting to eat and things like that oh speaking of which i loved the moment of uh the cheese sandwich as well <laughs> is that a, a commentary on the blandness of uh british food it is a little bit <laughs> <laughs> i thought that was really funny just the idea of this poor indian woman being cared for by presumably a well-meaning white lady yeah. who's gone and got her a cheese sandwich yeah. oh gosh <laughs> so before i forget is an indie game designed to be played kind of in one sitting. 
And it seems like a lot of these kinds of games, so story-focused games made by small teams that, that aren't particularly long, it seems like a lot of them are about mental illness. Why do you think that is? Maybe partly partly because we don't see those stories otherwise and partly because it's a really great medium for exploring those things and short games are particularly good at delivering intimate intense experiences you know i don't think anyone would want to play you know even four hours of alone like eight hours of before i forget <laughs> uh, you know as much as i love it uh, <laughs> And I think it would lose its power as well. You know, there's just something to be said for short games and the sort of deeply personal, affecting experiences they can tell and can kind of indulge in those small moments of life that you don't get time to, to you don't get that luxury to spend that time on someone going to make a cup of tea and then daydreaming out the window necessarily in in a big sprawling cinematic you know hijinks triple a adventure or something <laughs> so you know these are the, the spaces in small indie games are the spaces where we can explore the the small moments the small and sort of meaningful and powerful moments of life that aren't always about being stronger, you know, faster, better. Sometimes they're not that and they're kind of relatable and sometimes sad and sometimes incredibly happy and sweet. If you have recommendations for more games about the small moments of life, please share them with us by sending us an email at talkingsimulatorpod at gmail.com or tweeting us at talkingsimpod. And do make sure you follow us on Twitter and subscribe to Talking Simulator in your favourite podcast app so that you know as soon as the next episode is available. I've got some really great guests lined up, so make sure you don't miss out. And if you like these conversations, please let us know by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow Shella on Twitter at Shella Ramanan for more on games writing, movie reviews, and her advocacy work as one of the co-founders of the diversity initiative POC in Play. Our music is by Jazz Mickle. You can find her at Jazz Mickle. This episode also featured some music from the original soundtrack for Before I Forget, composed by Dave Tucker, which is available at davetuckermusic.bandcamp.com. Talking Simulator is edited by Leamington's loveliest audio person, Dan Parks. If you need to make something sound good, you can find him at Dan C. Parks. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Talk again soon. I don't really like explaining the ending because it is an ambiguous ending and um, I really am a fan of ambiguous endings. You know, I like David Lynch for that reason and I don't think I'd ever want to sit down with him and say, so what does it all mean, Dave? Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
That's me and David Lynch when we when we meet up at a cafe. 